the Bible tells us some astounding things about God, things that perhaps we've come to take for granted. One of the most amazing things the Bible tells us is that God intends to make his home with us. Yet this is the reality that human history is headed toward. As we come to Exodus 25 today, we get to explore the tabernacle, the tent in which God descended to dwell among the Israelites in the wilderness, a tent that has some significant things to say to us about the home God intends to share with us forever. Recently, my husband David and I drove to Knoxville, Tennessee to move our college-age student son, Matt, from last year's old house to this year's cool condo. And I found myself hoping he will live there next year too, so we don't have to do that again. Now, I could make a long list of things I hate about moving, but for sure, the worst thing has to be cleaning out the old place, when all you can think about is getting settled in the new place. But once you've moved your stuff out of the old place, you have to deal with the dust bunnies that multiplied under the bed, along with all of those coins and paper clips and salt packets and screws that collected in the backs of drawers, wiping out the refrigerator, wiping down the bathroom. I think we can all agree that this is definitely not the fun part. When I think about the drudgery of cleaning out the old place, I can't help but remember what may have been the best wedding present I received. One of my coworkers, Carrie Matthews, came over to the old, and I mean old, duplex that I lived in and helped me clean it out that week before my wedding. I can still see her scrubbing down that awful bathtub. Now that is a good friend. My heart had already moved ahead of me to that little apartment on Alford Road that David and I dubbed Avocado Land. Everything from the shag carpet to the countertops to the entry door lighting fixture was all 1970s avocado colored. And we loved it because this was going to be our home where we would live together and love each other. When you love someone, you want to live together in commitment to each other. And in fact, this is what we were made for. Human history began with the home that God created where he could live together with those he loved. In the Garden of Eden, God's original earthly sanctuary, Adam and Eve lived naked and unashamed, enjoying perfect intimacy with God and each other. But then an interloper entered, turning their hearts away from God. Their sin transformed the beauty of life lived in perfect oneness in the garden into brokenness of life lived expelled from God's sanctuary and personal presence in a world that had been corrupted by the curse. In Genesis, we read that God placed the cherubim and a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden so that Adam and Eve could not come back in their sinful state. But God has never been content to live with this separation from those he loves. So right there in the garden, even before he expelled them from it, he promised one who would come to destroy 
all that brought strife and alienation and separation, one who would restore the perfection and intimacy that God has always intended to share with his people. And then he began working out his plan to bring us back to him by setting his love on one particular man, Abraham, from whom the promised one would come. As Abraham's descendants multiplied into what became a nation, God set his love on them, not because of anything wonderful or unique about them, but because he loved them and he chose to make them his own. They were to be his representatives in the world, making him known throughout the entire earth and to every generation. And to these people, he began revealing more and more about himself and his intentions to one day dwell with his people again in perfect beauty, purity, and intimacy. God intended to implant within the heart of his people a longing to live with him in his home like we once did in the garden. Do you have that longing? Or do you find yourself content here? So absorbed in our current culture and surroundings that really you have little longing for a future at home in God's presence. In the passages we're looking at in this session, we see what God long ago set before his people that would remind them of how things once were in Eden, as well as point them forward to the way things will one day be in the new heavens and the new earth, which will be even better than Eden once was. So what was this picture of the perfection of the past as well as the promise of the future? The tabernacle. Because this tabernacle was intended to picture Eden as well as heaven, it had to be constructed to exact specifications and decorated in particular ways and in spectacular colors. This is the tabernacle that foreshadowed the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So it is God himself who drew up the blueprints that Moses and the Israelites were to follow to a T. This is what God was doing in the passages in Exodus that we're studying this week. God provided very specific instructions for the tabernacle. Now, why was he so particular? It was because this tabernacle was not an end in itself. It served to point toward a greater tabernacle and a greater way of dwelling with God that was to come. When we left Moses in Exodus 24, the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and he went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. He went up into the presence of God to listen to God speak to him. This is the first time we've read something like this in the Bible. God has appeared before and spoken, but this was different. What would you imagine God would want to communicate to Moses to take back to his people whom he had rescued from Egypt? What would be on the tip of his tongue of primary importance? God showed Moses a visual prototype and delivered verbal blueprints for building a tent 
in which he intended to live among his people. Rather than appearing to his people from time to time, God intended to move into the neighborhood to live among them. Look with me in Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, where we find the detailed designs for the tabernacle God gave to Moses. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. What kind of dwelling did God instruct his people to make for him? Interestingly, it wasn't large or ornate or especially beautiful. Certainly, we can think of much more remarkable homes, such as the Taj Mahal, Buckingham Palace, Versailles, or the Hearst Castle. The tabernacle was not even a building, but rather a giant tent, a portable sanctuary for God's presence. It was only about 15 feet wide and 45 feet long and was divided into two rooms, an outer room, which was called the holy place, and the inner room called the most holy place or the holy of holies. It was surrounded by a tall fence enclosing an area of little more than 10,000 square feet. That's about the size of two basketball courts creating a courtyard outside the tabernacle where there was a bronze altar for making sacrifices and a bronze basin for ceremonial cleansing. What gave this structure its significance was not its size, but its designer, the maker of heaven and earth, as well as its detail. The structure said something significant about how God intended to make it possible for a holy God to dwell with sinful people as it pointed to numerous aspects of the saving work of Jesus Christ. We don't usually start a construction project with what goes inside, but God began his detailed instructions for the tabernacle from the inside out, beginning with the piece of furniture that would be at its heart, the Ark of the Covenant. Ark is an old English word for a chest or box. Why would God begin his grand design with instructions regarding a rectangular box a little smaller than four feet by three feet? He did so because this was the most important thing in the whole tabernacle. This ark was the exact place where God would descend to dwell with his people. This would be his earthly throne. Look at Exodus 25, beginning in verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. Skipping down to verse 16, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. There was something inside this box, and something on top of it. Cherubim formed out of hammered gold were at each end of the box solid gold lid. What are cherubim? Are they the plump little naked baby cherubs like we see in so much angelic artwork? Well, that's not at all how the Bible portrays the cherubim. Remember that it was two cherubim who were placed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were expelled from it. 
charged with guarding the entrance with swords. So certainly these are fierce creatures. And here we see the cherubim serving as guards of God's dwelling place. And once again, they're depicted on the Ark of the Covenant, protecting the throne of God. The space above the cherubim was empty, as it was only to be filled with the living presence of God. Inside the Ark would be the Ten Commandments, written on stone tablets by the finger of God. But, of course, this was the law that exposed Israel's sinfulness. If God were to interact with his people based only on his law, they would be condemned. That's why what God prescribed to go between his presence on the throne and the law was so important. Between God's presence and God's law was the atonement cover or the mercy seat. When we call this the mercy seat, we're not talking so much about a chair, but rather a location as in the seat of power. The atonement cover symbolized the center and source from which God showed mercy to sinners. But the atonement cover alone was not sufficient. It had to be sprinkled with the blood of a sacrifice. The high priest once a year sprinkled the blood of an animal sacrifice on the mercy seat, demonstrating that atonement had been made. And in this way, when God came down to dwell with his people, he would not see, first of all, the law they had broken, but the saving blood of an atoning sacrifice. Outside the most holy place, in the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture. The table for the bread of presence, the golden lampstand, and the altar of incense. The tabernacle's true magnificence was in its message, not in its massive size or ornamental grandeur. And its furnishings were not large. The table was about the size of a common coffee table, about three feet by one and a half feet wide, and less than three feet tall. What was most important about the whole table was what was on it, 12 loaves of sacred bread, as well as various plates and dishes and bowls. What was this bread there for? Was this bread for God to eat? Like when we leave a plate of cookies for Santa Claus on Christmas Eve? No, this bread was not there to meet some need in God, but to symbolize our need for him. Twelve loaves of bread consumed by the priests and then replaced weekly served as a reminder of God's promised provision for the twelve tribes. It whispered reminders of God's constant awareness of their daily needs and his intentions to provide for them. It spoke not only of the source of their provision, but the substance of their provision. Because more than needing God to feed them, they needed to feed on God. This is exactly what Moses would make clear later in Deuteronomy when he said, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The second piece of furniture in the holy place, the golden lampstand, had a practical as well as a symbolic purpose. The tabernacle was a tent, four layers thick. It had an inner lining made of linen, which was covered with cloth woven from goat's hair. This was covered with ram skins, and over the top went a waterproof tarp made from the thick hides of sea cows. Underneath those layers, it must have been very, very dark. So surely the golden lampstand was there to provide light to the priests who entered, 
so they could see what they were doing. But there's more here that becomes clear as we examine the careful instructions God gave to Moses for its design. Look in Exodus 25, verses 31 and 32. Make a lampstand of pure hammered gold. Make the entire lampstand and its decorations of one piece, the base, center stem, lamp cups, buds, and petals. Make it with six branches going out from the center stem, three on each side. Skipping down to 37. Make the seven lamps for the lampstand and set them so they reflect their light forward. And down to verse 40. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. The lampstand was made in the shape of a tree, echoing the tree of life in Eden. And from the beginning, it showed God's people that as we approach God, we're coming into the light, that God alone is the source of all life and light, and that anywhere apart from him is utter darkness. The small altar of incense went in the middle of the holy place, directly in front of the Ark of the Covenant with the thick curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place in between them. So burning incense on this altar was part of the priest's daily routine. Every morning, they would trim the wicks and replace the oil in the golden lampstand and would burn fragrant incense on the altar. And the same routine was repeated in the evening. So each morning and evening, as the priest offered incense on the golden altar, he was, in a sense, approaching the mercy seat, the throne of grace from which God answers the prayers of his people. As we move into Exodus 26, we learn about the various layers of the tent that house the holy place and the most holy place, culminating in these instructions for the curtain that would separate the two rooms. Look over in Exodus 26, in verse 31. Make a special curtain of finely woven linen, Decorate it with blue, purple, and scarlet thread and with skillfully embroidered cherubim. Hang this curtain on gold hooks attached to four posts of acacia wood. Overlay the posts with gold and set them in four silver bases. Hang the inner curtain from clasps and put the Ark of the Covenant in the room behind it. This curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. If you were a priest who stood in the tabernacle and looked around at what was woven into the linen fabric in the inner layer, you would see a deep blue background with cherubim looking as if they were suspended in midair. So when you walked into the tabernacle, you would be symbolically transferred from an earthly location to a heavenly one. The tabernacle was a vivid portrayal of heaven the dwelling place of God. It simultaneously pointed back to when heaven was on earth, when God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day, as well as forward to the day when heaven will once again come to earth, when God will once again dwell with his people, enjoying the intimacy we once had in the garden. Over and over again throughout the following chapters of Exodus, we read that the tabernacle's design and creation was done just the way that God had instructed. And when we come to the end of Exodus, in chapter 40, we read this in verse 18. Moses erected the tabernacle. And skip down to verse 33. So Moses finished the work. 
Everything was set into place as God had instructed. And only one thing was needed. The glorious presence of God to fill it up. Look back in Exodus 40 verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. A spectacular display of the radiance of God's being descended from Mount Sinai into this little tent in the middle of the camp. This would now be the place for God's people to meet with the living God. The fulfillment of God's earlier promise of Exodus 29:45, then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. But immediately after this, we read in verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The whole book of Exodus has been moving toward the moment when God's people would worship him at this mountain. Yet when God finally descended into the tabernacle, even Moses, their mediator, who had met with God on the mountain, couldn't enter in. Perhaps in that moment, the reality of God's holiness and the people's sinfulness sank in a little deeper into everyone's understanding. Let's try for a moment to put ourselves in the sandals of the Israelites out in the desert if we can. Here is this tent in the center of camp built to exact specifications. We know that God who brought us out of slavery through the Red Sea and gave us his law has designed this tabernacle to communicate something significant and specific. So what is it we're supposed to see as we look at it? What are we supposed to understand? When average Israelites looked at the tabernacle and thought through its meaning, they were confronted with a difficult reality. They were never allowed to go inside. Here was God in their midst. But most Israelites never had a chance to see past the door, let alone go inside and meet with God. Everything about the tabernacle declared to the Israelites, no access, do not enter. If you were a man, you were allowed only into the courtyard. If you were a woman, you weren't even allowed in the courtyard. And only a select few priests ever served in the holy place during their lifetime. And even they were confronted with a curtain. A curtain that the Jewish Talmud says was four inches thick and took more than a hundred priests to move. Only one priest, once a year, went beyond the veil into the most holy place where God's presence dwelt. So as we stood outside the tabernacle complex or in its courtyard, examining and thinking it through, as we watched the priests carrying out their duties and wondered at the cloud of God's glory radiating from the most holy place, perhaps we would recognize that this was not all that God intended when he said he would dwell among us. Perhaps we would grasp that it was merely a shadow of a greater reality to come, a greater access, a greater intimacy that God intended to share with his people. And perhaps as we stood outside day after day, year after year, 
It would implant in our hearts a longing for God to fulfill his promise to send a better mediator, a better sacrifice, a true tabernacle in which we could have unfettered access to our God. John announced the arrival of the true tabernacle when he said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word John used for dwelt is the Greek word for putting up a tabernacle. He was saying that Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. Certainly no Jewish person reading these words of John's gospel would have failed to grasp what was being said. They understood that God in his glory had dwelt in the tabernacle. And John was saying that God's glory had now descended not to a place in the tabernacle or temple, but in the person of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews calls the tabernacle a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things symbolic of the greater and more perfect tent. Imagine if Jesus himself were to take us on a tour of the tabernacle, showing us how he was the substance that cast the tabernacle's shadows. We would see that everything about the tabernacle pointed to some aspect of his character and work. And that, in fact, the tabernacle had no meaning apart from him. When he took us through the courtyard, perhaps he would point to the bronze altar and say that when he offered himself as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice, he put an end to the sacrifices of bulls and goats, which never had the power to take away sin. Perhaps he would point to the bronze basin and say that we need no longer wash ourselves to come into God's presence, that he has cleansed us with the only cleansing agent that can wash away the stain of sin and purify our conscience, his own blood. As Jesus entered into the holy place, perhaps he would point toward the lampstand and say, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Perhaps he would point to the table of the bread of the presence and say, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Perhaps he would point to the altar of incense and say that he always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. For hundreds of years, the curtain hung in the tabernacle and then in the temple for generations of priests to see as they ministered at the table and the golden altar. And it announced to them that the way to approach God was not yet made known. And yet, because it was made of fabric, Rather than of stone or metal, it was obviously temporary. A way of access into the presence of God would one day be revealed. And Matthew tells the dramatic story of when the curtain was finally opened on the day when Jesus hung on the cross. 
when Jesus shouted out again and he released his spirit, at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So in giving us a tour of the tabernacle, surely Jesus would point to the torn curtain and say, now you can have confidence to enter into the holy places by my blood, by the new and living way that I opened up for you through the curtain that is through my flesh. As we entered into the most holy place, perhaps he would point to the mercy seat covered in blood and say, I entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of my own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is love. Not that you loved God, but that he loved you and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The cross of Christ is our mercy seat. It's the place where the blood of an atoning sacrifice reconciled us to God by coming between God's holiness and our law-breaking. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Perhaps if Jesus were giving us a tour of the tabernacle, he would remind us of how the cloud covered the tabernacle, filling it with his glorious presence. And then he might repeat the words that the angel Gabriel spoke to his mother about his conception when he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This was the glory of God descending to fill Mary's womb with his glorious presence. And from the moment of his conception, Jesus was the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Perhaps Jesus could go on to point out to us that the tabernacle was outwardly humble and unattractive. Just as the prophet Isaiah had said about the Messiah, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Perhaps he would help us to see that the tabernacle was the center of Israel's camp, a gathering place for God's people, and then turn to us and say, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Surely he would help us to see that his death was a means to an end, and that end is what God states again and again throughout the Old and New Testaments. I will be your God and you will be my people. The people of God will one day gather around the throne of God. He will be our God and we will be his people. And there will be no barriers, no sin to separate, no symbols, only glorious substance. We will approach God, not through a mediator, but face to face. Not on one day a year, but for all eternity. And on that day, there will be no need for a brazen altar for offering sacrifice. 
the lamb who was slain, our all-sufficient sacrifice will be on the throne and we will be singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There will be no need for our washing basin. All of those around the throne will have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. There will be no need for the table of the bread of the presence. He will have fulfilled his promise to anyone and everyone who has heard his voice and opened the door to come in to him and eat with him and he with me. There will be no need for a golden lampstand, not even for a sun or moon, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamp. There will be no need for an altar of incense. The prayers of a suffering church will have been answered and its people will stand clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. There will be no curtain that will separate us from the presence of God. We will be close enough to see his face, close enough that he will reach out and wipe away every tear from our eyes. I told you about that place my heart had moved toward even before I moved myself and my stuff to avocado land with David. I remember well what it was like in those days leading up to our wedding. We were planning and merging our lives together, but we weren't living together or sleeping together. And as our wedding day got closer, it got harder and harder to go home to my little dingy duplex at night. We wanted to be together. When we returned from our honeymoon and drove up to our apartment, David said, it's getting late, I guess I better take you home. And we looked at each other and smiled, knowing it wasn't true because we didn't have to be separated anymore. This was our home. And now we lived together and we could share everything. This is a picture of what it means when we read John's vision of that day, when all the tabernacle pointed to becomes reality. Finally, we'll be together with our God forever. There will be no more relating from a distance. Faith will have become sight. Shadows will fall away. And only glorious substance will remain. Do you find yourself longing for the separation and distance to give way to togetherness? Has your heart moved ahead of you to a place of intimacy with the Almighty? Or do you find yourself content where you are in this old place? Perhaps even so convinced that this is where the good stuff is, that you see making your move into the dwelling place of God as a tragedy, something to put off as long as possible. Is your true longing to have a few kids and a nice house and not be too sick and live on this earth a long time Maybe build a little business and watch your sports team win a few seasons and have some fun vacations. 
Can't you see that you were made for more? More beauty, more wonder, more joy, grander purposes, greater glory, deeper relationship. We are made for so much more than a few years on this earth and then turning back into dust. We were made to live forever in God's perfect place enjoying his perfect rule in perfect relationship with him. Won't you welcome God to implant within you a longing for that day, for that greater reality of living in his presence? Will you allow your heart to move ahead of you to that place, that day, when we will hear the loud voice from the throne, declaring the best news that anyone could ever hear? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God.